In this episode today, I'm changing things just a little bit. So keep listening to see what exactly we are doing different today. You did it. You have found your judgment-free zone, the Her Dinero Matters podcast, a bilingual podcast for women who want to become reinas of their money and love their dinero more. I am your host, Jen Hemphill, a former extreme frugalist turned reina of your money advocate. Each week, I'm going to help you reign your money like that queen that you are with inspiring interviews and panel discussions from La Comunidad Latina with solo episodes sharing simple, actionable tips and strategies. Thanks for spending some time with me today. And now let's jump into today's Dose of Money Confidence. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Jen Hemphill. Today's episode is similar but different. You are used to these interviews being focused on the money story of the guest for the day. Today, we do have a special guest. And yes, we will absolutely focus on her money story. But I am attempting to do so from a different angle. I want to start exploring those money stories from the intersectionality with race. Yes. This podcast is intended to be for Latinas. Having said that, it is important for us as Latinas to have a better understanding of what other people of color go through when it comes to money. I think the better understanding we have, the stronger allies we become and the quicker we can move the needle to equity and inclusion. In this episode, we get to meet Michelle Jackson. Michelle is mission driven to help her readers and listeners empower themselves financially, whether it is by improving their personal finances or learning how to sell what they already know. She loves having those conversations. Michelle runs the website and podcast, Michelle is Money Hungry, and is the founder of the Money on the Mountain Retreat focused on empowering financially single women one conversation at a time. When she's not geeking out about personal finance, you can find her hiking in the mountains of Colorado. In this episode, you're going to learn and you're going to hear her financial experience as a person of color living in a predominantly white and affluent area in Colorado, as well as the lessons learned from living in a studio during a financial difficult time for her and her mother, and a few tips that she shared to consider on our journey to become a strong ally for the black community. Lista, you ready? Let's go meet Michelle. Bienvenida, Michelle. You are here finally after years. I don't know how we haven't been on this podcast, but we've made it happen. And I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And if I had like two more cups of coffee in me and a cocktail, I would try to do this in Spanish. But I think for right now, we're only going to do it in English because I'm like, I'm dragging a little bit today because before we started, I told you I was in the wilds of Colorado backpacking for several days. And now I'm in recovery. And my brain is just like, what did you do? (laughs) (laughs) Es algo. En otra ocasión podemos hablar el español. Sí. ¿Te parece? Sí. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Well, Michelle does, for you listening, she loves the Latino community, which is one of the things that I love about her. She reminds me of my husband just fully embraces the Latino community. So that's one thing that I really appreciate about you. But let's start with your money story, Michelle. So take us back in time to maybe when you were a little girl, what did you see here experience when it came to money? So 
I would say that my earliest money memories were very much tied to the fact that my parents divorced. So when my parents were married, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I lived the first seven years of my life. My mom was with me and I went to private school. I'm an only child, so they wanted to make sure that I was socialized properly. We were a military family, so we were in Japan when I was an itty-bitty. And I started school in Japan, interestingly enough. And that was a fight, actually. My mom really fought for that. She really valued my education, even as a teeny tiny child, because I was like two, three, and four. So I was very small. And as you know, military people don't make a lot of money, especially back in the day when I was small. So my mom had me in this private school where the officer's kids and the children of wealthy Okinawans went at that point in time. So that was kind of something that was setting the stage, I think, for expectations for me and just where my mom's values were. When my parents divorced, though, it changed a lot of things because my mom went from being a stay-at-home mom to being a primary caregiver. That's a huge difference when you weren't really able to work because in an enlisted life, a lot of times it's very difficult for spouses to work because you're shifting, you're moving from one place to the other. And so it was very difficult because my mom had not a lot of skills. And so she eventually ended up deciding to go to college, which was a passion, like education was always a passion. And she ended up going to school here in Colorado. And money was was always a very interesting thing. There was always an ongoing tension in the background with money because we never seemed to have enough. So when I was little, my mom would get her student loans and she would literally pay for the entire year's worth of expenses up front so that if anything happened, we would be fine. For years, she would do that. It's so funny because she she would work all these little jobs and things like that just for like expenses and food. But that was an interesting thing to know that my mom was doing. She would buy supplies like toiletries, food, that kind of thing, and and stock it, partly also because it snows here. (laughs) So when I was little, it snowed a lot more. It doesn't snow as much as it did then, but we would always have just stockpiles. Not anything, like you wouldn't come to my house and be like, oh my God, there's so much stuff. Like nothing like that. Like it was all very discreet. Yeah, nothing. It was a lot of stuff, but it was all tidy and put nicely and, you know, where it needed to be. But there was always more than enough just in case, like just in case, because we were always financially on the edge. So that was a lot of what I observed in terms of money was just that money was hard. We didn't have enough. We struggled, but it was very confusing because I lived in a very, very rich town. To this day, this town is very, very well, well well-to-do town. I lived right by the mountains, so it's super beautiful. My mom had me enrolled in all these programs. So all of these, like, you know, if you talk to rich kids about what they did as a kid, I have all the same experiences. So the YMCA that I went to, I joke to this day that it's posh YMCA because it's still open. It is posh YMCA because they used to take us horseback riding. And we'd go horseback riding or, you know, there was a swimming pool and we'd go swimming or or they'd have like fun programming and hiking and all that stuff. I did Outward Bound. So I had this very complicated, confusing life because I didn't have a lot of money, but I had all these experiences because my mom made a point of applying for all these things for me because we would always be eligible for those scholarships and programs. So, yeah. Got it. 
So basically, your mom worked really hard on just get, providing you everything oh, yeah. in a, in a town that you mentioned was was wealthy. Now I'm curious because this is something, as I had mentioned to you before we started recording, something that I want to explore on a monthly basis, just because of everything that's been happening, and something that I want to learn, and something that I want those listening to learn is the Black American experience in the U.S. So when you look back. Back and reflect back. I know you mentioned your mom worked hard to give you those experiences. Was there anything that you recall that was impacted by you being and you and your mom being black American females because she's single mom and she's doing everything for you. So can you tell me about well, that? Well, I think in that town, especially with the programming and stuff that she was getting me in front of, I, I think that to be honest, I got a lot more yeses <laughs> because there were hardly any black kids in town. Right. And there hardly were any kids that didn't have a lot of money. So it was, I think very easy to get in front of transformative experiences because those programs were, or those scholarships were created with kids like me in mind. Uh, but there were so few kids. It was like an easy yes to, you know, and I was a good kid. I will say that I was a great kid. <laughs> Uh, so it was very easy for me to, to end up in a lot of that kind of programming. I will say that um, statistically, what happened with my mom is not unusual, not only based on color, but just when women divorce, they do experience a huge change in their financial outcome. For Black women, white women, what have you, like the statistics are very startling in terms of how it can plunge them into poverty and just create a lot of financial instability, which is why a lot of people right now at the time we're recording this episode might be deciding to stay in a marriage that's not ideal for them because of the financial instability. So I think statistically, my mom was totally matching the statistics of of the population of, you know, divorced women and ending up financially unstable because they divorced. And I would also say that my mom also helped out her little sister during that time too. So my aunt lived with us for a while and that is not unusual either because over 51 around 51% of black women will find themselves helping a relative financially and that was the case with my aunt as well as I found myself in that situation as well where I had to help my mom financially at a point in time when she lost her job. And quite frankly, there are a number of people that you and I both know in the personal finance space who are very well known personal finance influencers who've had the same experience. So I think that statistic in particular is something to consider in terms of how that how family dynamics impact finances and just what we have to do to manage what's almost an inevitability. So that I think is something that I think about quite a bit as a person in the personal finance space, because I've had such a huge impact on my money because of the money around me. Right. So, yeah. That makes sense. So talk to us a little bit about that experience post 
and you basically supporting you and your mom. So, and you had student loans. So not only were you supporting your mom, but you all, you had your own responsibilities that you needed to take care of. So talk to us well, about that. I should clarify. So she lost her job just a little bit before 9-11. I was talking about that. It's been so long now that your facts get all fuzzy. And honestly, like the further I get away from that situation, the more you just want to let it go. But I think mm. it's so important to share the story that I'm kind of refusing to let that go because right now in 2020, at at the moment we're talking, there are a lot of people who are experiencing what I did. So what Jen is alluding to is that part of my story is my mom lost her job a little bit before 9-11. I think the economy was starting, especially here in Colorado, that we were kind of having problems in our economy at that time. And she lost her job and she was just unable to get another one. And I was clueless. I had no idea really what was going on because before that was very easy to replace your jobs. You could just, you know, like you didn't care for a job. You could just give them two weeks notice and have a new job pretty quickly. My mom and I have talked about this in recent years that at that point in time, I think technology was really starting to affect how people looked for jobs, what kinds of jobs people could do that, like just the roles people could look for. So I think the ease of which she was finding work previous to that time just changed. Like a lot of things just hit the fan at the same time. So one day she just was like, Michelle, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to live with you because I don't, I just don't have any money. And I was like, okay, fine. But I was literally living in a studio in downtown Boulder, Colorado at that time. And I was in graduate school working at Starbucks and I had student loans. I was still in graduate school. So it wasn't like they were in payment mode. I was still in graduate school. And so I had to live with my mom for several years in my studio in this beautiful, beautiful town. I was just struggling. And part of the reason why it was so hard was I had horrible finances. Like before any of this came to be, I just had really bad financial skills. So I had this huge mess to begin with. And then this compounded it. So it was Mm. so stressful. But one of the things I didn't mention in other interviews is I also was humbled by this experience because there was a family from Algeria living in a studio two floors below mine. I lived in like a four story building, like a cute little building that still is there. The studio was beautiful too, but you know, you don't want to be living in a studio with your mom, right? But I'm serious. It it was demoralizing. Like to this day, thinking about it, it was demoralizing because who else was living like that, right? Like you laugh, but who else was living like that in in a town with people making, you know, two, $300,000 a year easily? Trust fund babies. Like it's the number one trust fund city in the country, had been for many years. So it was really hard. But there was this family from Algeria that lived two floors below me. And they had eight to 10 people living in their studio. They were immigrants. I'll never forget this. And they had two children, like tiny little kids. You never heard from these people. They were quiet. They were kind. Their home was immaculate. They slept on pallets. Mm -hmm. So they would like roll up the pallets they shared. And so as hard as it was for me, they had eight eight to 10 people in there. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. I'll never, ever forget that. Just thinking about it, I'm like, oh, and they were so humble. And I was like, if these people can leave their country with no resources and hardly speak English, a couple of them could, and they're still gracious and they're still kind and they're still generous and they're just doing what they can. I can make it through this. 
So I did because there's you only have two choices, right? right? And what I learned again was that statistic was that eventually I learned because I felt really lonely at the time. I was like, I'm the only person having this experience. And many years later, when I started blogging about money, I discovered that I was far from the only person having this experience. This was not unique to me. Again, 51% of African American women go through this, not including the percentage for Latina women. Like it's a thing that happens. But because I was so isolated from other Black people, I had no idea, you know? And with the internet, that really expanded my community, because then I, I connected with black people, white people, Asian people, all these different people who were like, oh yeah, we, we, we went through that too. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm not that unique. That makes me feel a lot better because I was feeling pretty crappy. And I was feeling crappy for a couple of reasons. One, I just felt horrible for my mom because this is when you still were receiving paper responses for the most part. Like you would get some emails, but she was still getting letters rejection letters over and over and over again. I think she probably got like 300 rejection letters easily. She just applied for jobs. That's all she would do is apply for jobs and they'd just reject her. So I cannot imagine how that was for my mom. And it was just horrible. It was a horrible situation. Was she applying in the same industry or was she She, No, no, she was applying for everything. Just anything she could do. And we were, you know, we were in a recession in the state. So there was also that. But I do think with how technology was really coming into how people do business, that, that that was an issue. I feel like a lot of people will have an experience like that now. I hate to say that. So right now we are in a pandemic. At mm-hmm. last report, they t- they're talking about 44 million people lost their jobs or filed for unemployment. Weirdly, ironically, strangely, interestingly enough, they're really not talking about the jobs. <laughs> like, I just don't even... <laughs> understand why this isn't a conversation. Uh, Because a lot of businesses now had to pivot. And a lot of the roles that people were working, they're gone. And, and to be honest, in my view, this is just accelerating a trend. So I think that coronavirus has accelerated a trend. We are where we would be five years from now. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. We're there now. So it just cut five years out of the trajectory. And so there are a lot of people who are going to experience what my mom did, which was just how do I pivot in a changing economy? And that's a question that I want to help people answer. And just, I feel like all of us who are in this, this personal finance space, we're, we're really mission driven and obligated to start having these very candid conversations about as a black person, as a Latina, as an Asian person, like these are the things that you need to start moving away from so that you can still make money in this current economy. Right. And that, that is an interesting point that you brought, you brought up that there are talking about the number of people that have lost their job, but we're not talking about jobs just because, as you mentioned, many jobs are just (laughs) disappeared. And the creation of jobs, I mean, you're right. I think you mentioned accelerating the trend, Mm -hmm. what could have happened four to five years from now. Are you referring to maybe working from home or what exactly, or just 
more the I'm tech. I'm referring to both. So I do think okay. work from home, I, I think a lot of businesses are surprised at how well people, most people are doing working from home and that their productivity stats and things like that have stayed where they need them to be. And for the most part, most employees are satisfied if they don't have small kids. If they have kids, they're they're hating life right now. So um, I think that, that that's really important to point out is anyone with children right now is pissed off. And I have a lot of friends with small kids. They're really unhappy right now. Um, the older the kid, the easier, but the smaller the kid, the, this is not a doable situation. The other thing I would say is it's the work from home, but also the tech. And I think that when we look at jobs that are being affected during this time, that's anything people facing, right? So working at an event venue. I used to do lots of side hustles at the convention center. Loved it. Mm -hmm. What conventions are we having? Bars. Here in Denver, they just, re they or in the state of Colorado, they just closed the bars again because, you know, it's a pandemic. Anything where you're physically dealing with people face to face, those industries are going to be forever changed, partly because businesses are going to figure out ways to do the same thing with fewer people, because sometimes they have to. And other times they're like, Oh, wait, we didn't need that many people. So I went to there's a new Whole Foods in downtown Denver. It's really, you know, next to Union Station. Before the pandemic, there were a lot of like little registers where people helped you. After the pandemic, started like you know we were all locked down three months later we're let out <laughs> and I go downtown and I'm at the store and I'm like what is happening because now they have a self-service and they're like oh yeah we're one of two mm, stores yeah. in the state who now have this or something like it was new I noticed that kind of thing because I'm like that was work someone else was doing right yeah Yep. And I think even with, with the yes. pivots, I think there's going to be pivots within the pivots because I'm seeing all these things going virtual. And for me personally, <laughs> I just can't do any more virtual events. I can't like attend the thought of attending a summit or an online event. I just can't. So I think because everybody was like, oh, pivot, just go virtual. Okay. It's yeah, it can be easy as that. But then in the long term, does it make sense? sense from the perspective of a consumer. If, you know, there's online events that are uh, coming up and I'm like, nope, I just can't do it. But I think that there's a difference between like, we're literally fit, like, what can we do during a time when physically we really shouldn't be that close to one another versus right. an ongoing business decision. So we will definitely have in-person events. In fact, I'm a, I'm speaking at an in-person event in July, like a couple weeks from now. The thing is, instead of like, say, several hundred people, there's 50. Right. Th this event was always like 50. But I think that a lot of events are going to have to pivot if they're going to want to do in person, they're going to have to address that issue, because I like seeing people in person. But I know I don't want to be catching the Rona either. Right. Right. <laughs> so, so Neither do I. Um, and, and as an event creator, I don't want to be liable either. So I don't want to run an event and not be able to get insurance for the event. And then two, two weeks, two weeks later, everyone's like a cluster from my event. So there's all these different considerations that people are having to, to weigh as business people, as employees. And, and it's, it's really difficult. So right now is, is a very interesting time because 
we are literally having to make life and death decisions beyond what is normal. Like driving your car is a life and death decision, right? Because you could get in a car accident. But doing an event or attending an event with unseen pathogen has now become a life and death decision. Right. Or how often you go to the grocery store or any place, it's like, okay, how many risks did I take today to not just me, but for my family exactly. and those that I might encounter? That's how my brain is thinking. And each, and if I have to sneeze exactly. in the grocery store, oh my gosh, please don't. Or if someone, I haven't seen anybody sneeze around me because I would oh, remember girl. that, <laughs> but I just am very cognizant if like, oh my gosh, even though I'm, I'm wearing the mask and I'm like, I'm going to sneeze because that would freak me out. So I'm thinking that will yeah. me sneezing will freak someone out or yeah. coughing, sneezing, coughing, the things that we would normally not really pay attention to, we are now paying attention to. And and it's funny because actually you don't have to go grocery shopping. You can just do it online. So one of the interesting things is people are now innovating. So in Denver, there's now this new, it's a small business that I support. Uh, I'm going to be doing my first order, I think next week, which is an online grocery, but it's a zero waste, which is huge for me. And you order your groceries or whatever, and they have it all in zero waste containers, and then they like clean them and then reuse them. Mm -hmm. And I love it. But this business was a direct result of what happened. So even though we're kind of like, you know, it got a little heavy, there's a lot of opportunity right now. And one of the things I want to really get people thinking about is now is that time you can be bold about a thing, because what do you have to lose? Absolutely. Now, I want to take it back because you've shared so many good things here today, Michelle. And I wanted to take it back. Your experience in wealthy to do town as one of the few black Americans in the town. What would you say with that experience and knowing other black American women's experiences? What would you like other people to know that they should be aware of that Maybe you didn't go through some of these things and where you were living, but what would you like other people to know and be aware of and just be more empathetic and understanding with women? I'm going to answer this in two very different ways. So I think that the first thing is when you are a person of color, regardless of whether you're black, what have you, there is definitely a difference in the access that you have to certain things. There just is. And so really being able to cultivate an awareness of that is key to attracting opportunities to you financially. So understanding it's one of those things like you don't have time to be resentful or whatever. It just is what it is. Okay. So really developing a skill as a person of color of figuring out who are the gatekeepers between me and what I want. What's the conversation that I need to have between me and what I want? What am I willing to do to get what I want? So I'm going to say because I grew up in a very white state, I was very fascinated. Uh, I went to school to college in upstate New York, tons of New Yorkers from New York City, whatever, most diverse community I'd lived in as an adult, as a young adult. And it was so interesting to me how I thought about certain things versus the kids who grew up in diverse New York City. And I found that I was 10 times more willing just to like bring my chair to the table and just elbow my way onto the table 
versus waiting for people to make the space mm, for Because me. you've been doing it all your life. Well, no, not even that. If I didn't, I would always be waiting. <laughs> like I would, yep, if true. I waited for other people, nothing was going to happen. <laughs> so it was so interesting to me because I am still to this day, really surprised by this, right? In Denver, if I wait for other people, I will wait forever. So I just have to make things happen. In New York, it feels like people just feel like you have to be given this entree, you know, like this invitation. And I just... I wouldn't have done half the things that I have done if I waited. So I find that very interesting. And I want people to stop waiting for other people to invite them to the table. Make your own freaking table, bring your own chair and keep it moving. I think that now with technology, people have become a lot better about doing that because they can create their own platforms and do the things that they need to do and stop waiting for other people. So I think that that would be one of the lessons that I've learned being from a state with no black people. (laughs) Like you just have to do what you have to do and keep it moving. I love it. I love it. Robert Smith, the billionaire, you know, the black guy who paid off all the Morehouse students, uh, college loans and their parents, he's from Colorado. Hmm. You know, there are a lot of people that you would be surprised by who grew up here in Colorado and they just did what they had to do and kept it moving. You know, Madam CJ Walker, even though everyone watched that dang Netflix movie, they don't talk about the fact that she grew her business in Colorado Mm -hmm. with no black people, with no, no black hair, hardly any black hair. She became the first black millionaire in a random freaking state. So my point is don't wait for other people, create your own table, create your own platform, create your own chair and get it moving. That said, if you're a person listening to this and you are not a person of color or you're listening to this and you are in a role, regardless of color, you're in a role like human resources, a hiring role, someone who can really affect someone else's professional trajectory, really be self-aware about your biases as they affect other people. I was part of the reason why I work for myself now. And I believe why black women are starting businesses at 300% other cultures is because I got roadblocked professionally. Mm. I wanted to uh, market the program that I worked for. I did this amazing job. I worked so hard and I worked with international students. And in order to market the program, you had to fly to other countries. It was a big deal because we worked with international adults. And I was told by two different directors that they didn't feel comfortable with me representing the organization. One person was professionally protecting herself and she only wanted the opportunity. The other woman was just racist. Mm -hmm. And I, after that happened the second time, I was like, no one else will ever, ever, ever tell me no again like that. Not ever again. And I created my own conference. It was international. I had people come over from Canada and all over the US and I hosted it here and I raised thousands of dollars for it. It was in the black. And I was like, this goes back to do it yourself, create your own platform. And I did it because I had certain skills that I wanted to develop and highlight and share. And they said no. And I was like, that's insane because I knew what a good job I was doing. To this day, I haven't worked there for almost six years now. I still have students who are in touch with me every week. I love it. From their experience there because I did such a good job. That is awesome. So 
I, I need you guys to be aware of how you affect other people in their professional tra- trajectory. Even myself, I was a supervisor for student assistants, college age student assistants, but I also trained admins who were my age or older. And my goal was always to have them leave with as many skills as they could and a glowing reference glowing. Mm -hmm. To this day, I still get asked for references. I was asked this year for a reference from a student that worked with me 10 years ago for (laughs) law school, you know, for like a law job because they were changing and needed a new bar approval or whatever. And so I think that people forget how they can affect other people. And actually, the other thing would be really spend a lot of time working on your network and your references. Mm -hmm. So I work for myself, but I was reached out to about a an opportunity, like a job opportunity uh, that I could do remote. And I'm going to apply for it. And I have really good references for this. I could totally do this job. It's, you know, it'll be down to who they want to do it. But because I have these really good, well-tailored references for this position and the kind of work that they are looking for, I think I have a good opportunity to at least get a second or third look. So the other piece I would say is really when you are emailing people, like say, for example, you're a freelancer and you're emailing your editor, be always, always, always email pleasantly. You could hate them, but don't let them know that you hate them. Okay. (laughs) Like always be hyper aware of your communications with people. Absolutely. Always nurture those connections, be of service to others, but don't be a fool, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And I think that that will benefit you and always ask for more. Love it. Because it's so easy to settle for less. And that's been a hard one to learn. Oh, absolutely. Well, Michelle, this has been absolutely fantastic. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do and our community and this personal finance space in Colorado, like all the things that you do out there. So thank you so much for being here, sharing your story, a little bit about you and some golden nuggets for the day. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time talking to you. I'm curious, what did you think about this conversation? As I mentioned, my goal is to have some episodes, maybe monthly, maybe not monthly, but more on the regular to tackle that intersectionality of race and money. My questions will get better over time. That's my intention. But meanwhile, tell me what kind of questions are you curious about when it comes to this topic? Let me know by sending me a message on Instagram or send me an email message, just go to my website. It'll be easy to send me a message. To connect with Michelle, you can go to her Instagram, which is Michelle is Money Hungry, and I'll have that link in today's show notes. Now, have you heard the Daily Money Ritual has gotten an overhaul and has been redone? It's called the Dinero Daily Ritual now. And if you haven't gotten your free copy, I would run over right now and grab your copy over at jenhemphill.com forward slash Dinero. This tool will help you get in the habit of celebrating those money wins, focusing on what's important, acknowledge those money strengths, catch those limiting thoughts and reframe them into ones that serve you. And you will also be writing a love 
love note to yourself. Yes, you heard me right. You'll be writing a love note to yourself. So grab yours if you haven't done so. Again, at jenhemphill.com forward slash dinero. And if you already have grabbed it in the past, just log into your account at jenhemphill.com forward slash the lounge and you will see the new and improved tool. That is it. Eso es todo. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune into the show. I want to thank Michelle for her time, for her wisdom, and for her knowledge. Be sure to check out the brief show notes over at jenhempill.com forward slash 223. I want to remind you to claim your reina crown because you are a reina of your money, whether you believe so or not. All you have to do is claim it. Just say, I am and trust the process. Also, share with us when you listen to this episode by taking a screenshot or a selfie or tag us in the IG stories with her Dinero Matters and the same hashtag. So thanks again for listening. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Ciao.